Psalm 112. If you've made it there, we're going to read all ten verses, which is quoted in our text before us in 2 Corinthians. Psalm 112 reads in the New King James, Praise the Lord! Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. I'm not sure that that is uh, always consistent with the manner in which we live our lives and the priorities that we make in our lives. But this morning we're going to finish up. I know I think I've said that three weeks in a row. I'm going to try to really finish up this week the area of uh, giving and stewardship that's here in Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. <clears throat> And I'm doing this very deliberately because I don't want, thank you, I don't want anyone to uh, come away saying, well, you didn't really cover this aspect. And I know I skipped several verses last week in trying to talk about what it means to sow bountifully and to reap bountifully, that it, rather than looking so much at the idea that the wealth, health wealth gospel is portraying that if we sow money, we're going to reap money, which isn't in the Bible at all. It's just not there. Even within the context of, of uh, Psalm 112 that we're going to read, uh, for the believer, that just isn't something we're looking for. We talked about that last week, that our anticipation, our expectation, is that if we sow temporal stuff, we're investing it with an expectation that's bigger than anything of this world. And so when I go to my investment strategist, if you have one, you go to, for some of you I might be that, but you go to your investment strategist and say, I'm going to take this money and I'm, I want it to last forever. I'm looking for eternal return. One that will never diminish, no matter what collapses in the entire universe. Um, that will never tarnish. That will never run out. And they'll look at you like, where are you from? Um, because what they usually do is they set you up for something that might last, what, till retirement. Through retirement. They're going to set you up for retirement. What that means is that they're going to invest with an idea of getting a material return uh, when you think you're going to retire somewhere between 62 and 75, for most of you, I think, or somewhere in there, 65 and 72, something. Um, and that's going to last till you they think you're going to die. And they'll look at whether you're a male or female and decide what the expected lifespan is. And 
maybe they'll look at your genetics a little bit, not a whole lot. I've never found any financial advisors ask me how long my grandparents lived and things like that. But they're going to try to set you up, let's say, to 100. So you still have a livelihood that you can rely upon to 100 is their expectation. They're, and they think they've accomplished a lot when they've done that. And frankly, that's not enough. And that's pretty puny results, frankly. God says, I've got some greater results for you that I want you to invest in. And we invest that by sowing bountifully, and that's sowing in righteousness, and giving is one aspect of God's grace. So remember, it's not a law, but a grace, that when we have that grace, we participate in it, and we have an opportunity to invest in something that will outlive the world. It will outlive the very thing that we're planting. Because the Bible makes it very clear that all that we see around us will one day be melted away in fervent heat. And so I want to invest in something that's going to outlive that. The Bible says you can do that. When we sow in righteousness to the praise of God's glory, by His grace, we can reap things that last eternally, like thanksgiving to God, the power of ministry, that we have the prayers of God's people on our behalf. And if you think prayers only last as long as you're saying them, you haven't read your Bible carefully enough. Some prayers are stored. Did you know that? Prayers are stored? Some prayers are stored in heaven. If you don't believe me, go to Revelation where they get unstored. They get unpacked and used in Revelation chapter 7, 8 where they get used, and how all of a sudden the prayers of the saints get applied there well after the saints are in, in heaven. And so we find this uh, aspect of eternalness to something you can take of material things and invest it, of your time, of your energy, of your will, of your resources materially, uh, and you can invest them in something that will be eternally uh, rewarded. And alternatively... For the Christian, we also find a principle in Scripture that if you don't invest in those, and you invest all these things in earthly matters, and even if you get a reward from them in earthly terms, they will not ever follow you into eternity. That when you cease to exist, they cease to be of any value to you. And hence we have songs and sayings about you never see, you know, certain things following hearses. You just don't see them. You, know, you can't take your bank account with you. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your car with you. None of that stuff goes with you. We are called upon to have an opportunity to invest and the wise person will invest what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I borrowed that from somebody else. That's not original to me. To give up what I can't keep because you can't. One day you're going to be gone. To get what I can't lose. 
And once we into our heavenly reward, that is what God offers us. So we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we want to pick up having studied sowing and reaping last week. We want to look into another aspect, the final aspect that we're going to study in this series, because we come to the end of the chapter of our giving. And that is what it means to give cheerfully. We've already addressed this somewhat, but I want to do it again in this section of Scripture more directly. Before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the opportunities you give us right now to look in your word and how precious this time is. And we do pray that you might work in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Might guard this time from error, from opinion. Your spirit might work mightily in our midst that we might be attentive, setting aside the distractions of life, of wandering thoughts. Might remove those distractions from within us and from around us. We might give ourselves entirely to your truth today during this time. And Lord, we do pray that it might be your truth from your word, directed by your spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Verse 7 of chapter 9, and let's go ahead and read this portion of Scripture since we read up from Psalm 112 earlier. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, having Always, I'm sorry, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As is written, he is dispersed abroad, he is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. That's where we're going to stop. Because we really looked at the administration of the gift last week and several weeks ago. We want to look at these verses and really explore them uh, because they have a wonderful presentation of what it means to be a cheerful giver. We've looked at the fact that if you don't have this prerequisite, you can never be a cheerful giver. And that is, you have to remember the prerequisite, this is not of law but of grace. That if God gives me this grace, and he has... I'm going to take away the conditional clause of that, okay? If, if God graces me that way, then, then I'm going to wait for that. Until then, I'm not given nothing. God has given to every believer the grace of giving. The question is to what extent you've accepted that grace. That's really what's a question. Not whether he has extended it to you, because he has, um, because God has made all grace abound to all, and so we find that he has given us this grace. The question is whether we have laid hold of it or not, to what degree of faith we have done so. And so we find this principle at work. It's a necessary principle. It is needed before we can get any further into the idea of, of uh, reaping bountifully even, and we talked about that last week. And we also have to acknowledge, understand that aspect before we get into the rest of this morning. Because if you're thinking that this is a law 
that if I do this, I've got God over a barrel to do this, then you are thinking of it wrong. Let's remind ourselves what the word grace means. It means something you don't deserve. So in the equation, and this is going to sound really freaky to you a little bit, in this equation, you have an opportunity to give. That opportunity to give is itself a work of God's grace. Which means you have already been given something you don't deserve. Huh? So you don't have God over a barrel. He's got you over one. By allowing you to give, he has extended to you something you don't deserve. You don't deserve that privilege. You don't deserve it. It is a grace. You're not worthy of it. And so when I participate in it, and this is why Thanksgiving goes to God whenever there is real godly giving going on in our churches, this is why Thanksgiving always goes to God, because just the privilege of giving isn't something I deserve. It is a very blessed thing to give rather than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so I'm already in a position of owing God something. So here I am, because I have the privilege of giving something, I now recognize that I have to give thanks to God for the privilege of allowing me to give. Now, who's got who over a barrel? Who owes who what right now? Does God owe you something because you gave? No, you owe God because he has given you a grace. Something you didn't deserve. So that now, in the privilege that he's given you to participate in giving, you owe him even more. You see, we have a different concept of it. And it's a, it's a very economic, earthly, human concept of it. That, well, you know, I have, you know, I earned this money and I'm going to bless everybody by giving this percentage of it to you. I'm going to give this away, and, and now I'm going to sit back and just wait for all the applause. Because they all owe it to me, because I gave it to them. They owe me something, don't they? And we think in those terms, and those are human terms, and they're foolishness. This is not the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God teaches us, this is the grace and now, having participated in a grace of God, I am more indebted to God than at the beginning. That he allowed me to do that. And so all the thanks goes to God. Now, with that as a foundation, we can get into what Paul's going to communicate here. Here's how this grace works. And I want you to notice an important word that keeps cropping up or form thereof that keeps cropping up in this verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. And that's exciting, right? How many of you want all of God's grace to abound? That's overflow your cup. All of us, right? All we want that? God's grace, please abound and overflow my cup. All right. I want it to abound to me. All His grace. Why? Look at this. He's, gonna, he's able, God can do that. He can make all grace abound toward you. 
that you, and now here's that word, always and all and every. Look at the inclusiveness of these words. That you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. We think of our good works, because we've been trained to do this by our society, as something to our credit that means I'm owed something by society. If I've done this good to my neighbor, um, the world owes me something. If I've done this good to my society, the world owes me something. And this is the reverse of Christian thinking. Good works, the opportunity to participate in something worthwhile, and by good works, um, you know, I'm not talking about helping people cross streets and, you know, recycling and things like that. I, I, maybe, but what we're looking at is really something more substantive than that, something more enduring, more lasting, more eternal than that. But we want to see this end result is good work. And the opportunity to have it requires all these steps coming up to it. And every one of those steps is a working of God's grace, which means that when I am given the privilege of doing something wonderful for God, um, I am humbled by it. And not just superficially, it is genuinely humbling. To say somehow God could pick up that snotty-nosed brat of a kid, that's who I was, pull him out of whatever life he was, course he was going, and because he was willing to let God lead him, God takes him and makes him into something that allows him to preach in a pulpit this morning. And to me, that is unfathomable. I'm not owed anything for this. And preachers that think, oh, you're so blessed to have me as your preacher and you should be paying me this salary and you should be treating me in this manner, have got it all upside down. That's the most godless kind of thinking there is. And it certainly throws in the face of this one verse of Scripture. It begins with God giving me something I don't deserve. Grace. All grace abounding toward me. God's able to do this. He is able and He is willing. The question is, are we willing to receive it? God is willing to save the world. He is able to save the world. He waits for any in the world to accept His ability and His will to save them. Similarly, for the Christian, God is able and willing to have all grace abound to you if you will simply be willing to receive it and function in it. So it's available. God's able. It's never a question of whether it's out there. It's never a question of the provision. The provision is full, overflowing, and enough. More than enough. It's abundant. So, here we come. The last two-thirds of the verse. That you, always, that's all time. So all the time, not just some of the time, not just for this one season of your life, but always, that throughout all of the opportunities that you have in life, throughout all the time from that early morning 
Monday morning all the way through Hump Day on Wednesday. We probably got wiped out like two days of the week, right? Because Monday morning is, uh, and then there's Hump Day on Wednesday. It's horrible. And then we get to Friday and it's TGIF and we're not useful at work either. So we really boiled it down. We're only useful at work for two days a week, right? And we pretty much done that? Because Monday I'm wiped out from the weekend. So I can work Tuesday. And then Wednesday's Hump Day, so we're all depressed. Um... And then I can work Thursday and then Friday. I'm just too excited about the weekend to really give you my full attention at work. Isn't that silly? Instead of being thankful, we can work it all and we'll put our whole selves into it five days a week, all every day. Maybe the hump is the weekend. But we come to life upside down with this. God says all the time, my grace abounds to you. So you don't have a timely excuse. It's not just Sundays. <laughs> Always. That when we're really walking in God's grace, it is not an on-again, off-again thing. Salvation, you know, you're not saved uh, you know, a few days of the week and not saved the other days of the week, are you? But the way we live our Christian lives, it looks like it to the world. And so the first statement in terms of our actualizing the grace of God in our life, that we can be cheerful givers, is that it's always there. I'm always looking for the opportunities to serve God. I always am looking for the grace that He gives me to minister, and whether it's the gospel or whether it's it's an opportunity to minister in other ways, materially or spiritually or relationally, whatever it is. Always. God's grace enables us to always be looking, all times be looking for opportunities to serve Him. And the idea that the only place you can really serve the Lord is on church on Sunday is just foolishness. Always. His grace is abounding so that you can always see His hand at work. You can always look for those times to serve Him. That good works aren't just for one day of the week, but they're for every day of the week, for every hour of the day. And not only can it be all times, but it says you're having all sufficiency. I am really tired of people that I just don't have the talent to do that. I can't serve the Lord. I have nothing to serve Him with. So I'm going to serve Him with my complaining. That's a statement against God. That God has shortchanged you somehow. And my response to that kind of attitude is, well, you're not willing to accept His grace, are you? You're too selfish to accept it. Because my Bible says that God is able to make <laughs> all grace abound, overwhelmingly overwhelmed toward you. That doesn't sound like you don't have the resources to serve him with, does it? In other places of Corinthians, we talked about spiritual gifts that God has given them and, and distributed them freely within the church. Uh, we have that also in Ephesians and Romans. We have this repeated idea that God is giving these gifts, but they're not for your own pleasure and use and comfort they are to serve with. And that means they have to be others-oriented and others-focused. And we go through life going, hmm. 
poor me, I don't have anything. You just listen to who you're talking about the whole time. You're talking about you. And the Christian life isn't about me. It's all about God. And once it's about God, then it's about others. I think we learned that at Joy Clubs. Jesus, others, and then you. And sometimes the greatest joy is just have Joe instead of the joy. Forget the you entirely. Let someone else take care of the you. When we focus our attentions here, it is foolishness and it is an affront to God. It is a statement to God that you didn't equip me well enough to serve you. That's what you're saying. Let's be honest. As an accusation against God, when you mope around and say, I don't have anything to serve the Lord with, when God says He has given you all sufficiency, you have everything you need if you'll simply place your trust in Jesus Christ fully, walk in His grace, which means you're going to walk in righteousness and truth and in love, all those things, then all sufficiency is yours. You have everything you need to serve Him with. You know my testimony enough, I think most of you, that as a teenager I was told point blank in no, <laughs> in no tender ways that I had no speaking abilities at all. Just shelve that idea that you're ever going to get in front of people and talk. I could mope around and kick the dirt and and uh, shuffle off into oblivion, uh, convinced that, well, God didn't give me enough to serve Him with. He didn't equip me to do the job. But the fact is, is that usually what we're evaluating among young people, uh, teenagers, is not spiritual giftedness, but natural ability. And I want to share with you something. The kids that natural ability aren't serving the Lord today. Because natural ability only equips you to serve yourself. I'll say it again. Natural ability only equips you to serve yourself. Spiritual grace enables you, equips you to serve others. It's sufficient. And so I tell people regularly and often that I'm here as a preacher by the grace of God. That I don't have the natural ability to do this. I'm an introvert. I'd rather be all by myself in a study or in a thing or somewhere else. But you see... Grace says, I have a debt to God to serve His people with what He has made me sufficient in, well beyond my natural abilities. And so the end result isn't, well, let's applaud this man. Oh, no, it's give glory to God because this man had little to do with it. All I said, I'll take whatever you got, Lord. I'll take what you got. And I don't know that that's much to applaud someone for. 
And so God says, I will give you everything you need to serve me. So, I'll give you every opportunity to serve me. I'll give you every need, that, every thing you need, every supply, every provision you need to serve me. So, I'll give you all the opportunity. I'll give you all the resources. And now, it goes, we're not done with the alls, right? So, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Wow. We've talked about spiritual gifts, that there's a gift of giving, and, and yet God has enabled us that we are all sufficient to participate in that. There's a gift of evangelism, and we can identify someone and say, well, he's an evangelist. That doesn't mean I sit on my hands and don't do evangelism. Because I am sufficient in all things. There are some people that you can reach that the evangelist can't, and that you must reach because the evangelist can't. Because he doesn't know them, and you do. He doesn't visit with them, you do. He doesn't work beside them, but you do. He doesn't live next door, but you do. He's not related to them, but you are. Do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of giving, whether you're gifted in it. And God says, I have given you sufficiency to do all things. You can serve me in all these various ways. To some degree enough, you have enough. The question isn't whether God has equipped you enough. The question is, are you willing to accept what he has given you and to do it? And so God says, you know what? I'm not asking and demanding things of you that I'm not supplying for you to do. I've given you these commands. I expect you to go out there and do that. And I expect you to do it not in your own ability and strength and wisdom, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God's truth and God's word and in the ability that I am sufficient for you in. And you can touch all these bases. I'm a professional pastor. I get to preach and you pay me to do that. It's wonderful. It's startling, actually. Um, does that mean none of you are preachers? The word preach just means to proclaim, speak truth. Some of you need to be preaching in your home to your kids. You need to be preaching at work, proclaiming truth. That's what a preacher is. Someone proclaims truth. To speak it forth. God calls us all to that. I have a privileged position to be able to do that as a livelihood. As a, <laughs> I would do it if it wasn't if it was a deadlyhood. But uh, and for some of my brethren, it is just that. By the way, a deadlyhood. So they're doing it at the risk of their life and still preaching. But we find God says you're sufficient to all things that every facet of ministry really falls on all of us because God's grace is that abounding. That while I may not take the office within the church, I recognize I have a responsibility to those that I have around me to let them know what the truth of God's Word is. I have a responsibility to those around me to, to confront them with their, with their sin and rebuke, correct instruction, all of that can be done with God's Word. That's not just preachers that are allowed to do that. The expectation is that all believers do that in all things. I cannot think of a single facet of the Christian ministry that 
relies upon a narrow number of people that are sufficient to do it. The Holy Spirit at work in any believer makes him sufficient in all things of ministry. And so when I go on vacation, I throw poor people into this role, like deacons and people like that, and I throw them into roles to preach, and, and uh, they know they don't have the ability. The amazing thing is, is that what the only difference between me and them is that I've had time to deal with that, develop it, my inability. But God's grace abounds so that all the time you have everything you need to minister in every way. What are you moping around and complaining for? Why are you excusing yourself from serving God? Every excuse you give is an accusation against God. It really is. You're saying His grace is not enough. He hasn't graced me enough. Every time you've excused Oh, I'm so busy. I can't serve because I'm so busy. You're accusing God. Filling up your schedule too much. I'm pretty sure that was you that did that, not God. I don't have the talents. I said, well, good. Now maybe you rely upon the grace of God. We're not done with the all-inclusive words. So we have all grace abounding toward you, always having all sufficiency in all things, last phrase, may have an abundance for every good work. And here's the conclusion. You see, we start off with our good work and we figure that that weighs something in God's economy, that it's worth something, it's a value. And we see it as something we bring to the table, our good works. And you hear people talk about good works can't save you. Well, this is why good works can't save you, because you don't bring it to the table. It's what you are taking off the table from God. I know some of you are struggling. I can tell by by your looks that you're struggling to understand this. God's grace gives you every opportunity, every resource, every privilege to serve. He gives you, enables you in all things to serve Him. He puts it there before you and says, serve me. I've given you the, every opportunity. I've given you everything you need in every area. It sits on the table as God's offer of His grace. You don't deserve the privilege to serve me in these ways. You never will. And we come to that table completely empty-handed. We have nothing of value to offer there, to trade, to exchange it for it. We come to that table completely worthless of our own merits. And we come to the table where there's this wonderful package there with our name on it. God's grace abounding to every good work. And we get to pick it up, maybe. Some of you come to the table and, and you look at it and say, oh, you know, I don't know. 
someday maybe. And there the package sits and you just slap God in the face. Said thanks, but no thanks. You see, it's not much different than the salvation offer, is it? God comes and says, listen, my grace can abound to you. I'm able. I am able. If you'll believe, I am able. I am able to use you if you'll simply trust me to do so. I am able. God is able. And so we come to that table and and by faith we pick it up. Now it's ours as a gift from God. So now you get the privilege of doing acts of service. Now, you didn't buy it. You didn't earn it. You picked it up off the table, correct? It is something that God's grace has provided you with. Now, you get to have it in your life. The result of this is thanksgiving to God. And you understand that the privilege of serving God is just that, a privilege. That it is not to my credit, it is to God's credit, because He provided the opportunity, He provided the means, He provided the, the resource. And there it is. I'm, I'm serving Him now. And I'm like, wow, I get to serve the Lord. And if we have this understanding of service to God as an act of God's grace in our life, it transforms us. If we are doing it in our strength and to our glory, then guess what's going to happen? If you don't get praised enough, what's going to happen? You're going to stop it. You're going to stop. You're going to shuffle. I don't know if appreciates me. You're going to sit there. I'm not going to do it anymore. That's where it gets to. When you think that it's yours, bring it to God instead of God giving it to you. That it's yours. Oh, the act of ministry is not yours. It is a gift from God that He gives freely, offers up on the table, and waits for Christians to come up and pick it up. And he quotes out of Psalms there, and I'm not going to have time to get into that. Um, I'd love to. Maybe I'll just go one more week. I don't know. Um, he quotes out of Psalms 112, and Psalm 112 talks about investing in caring for the poor and doing all these things as a godly person, and at the conclusion of it, listen to the conclusion of this verse, his righteousness endures forever, that the real measure of righteousness of a righteous man is how he handles his financial resources because it tells that his heart isn't about gathering those resources but about serving with them. In order to have a servant's heart, you have to recognize that you've accepted this from God's gracious hand and now you get to work it. You get to work it out. And that you are the dispersing agent. And God, of course, is the He is capitalized in this verse. But if you go to Psalm 112, they capitalize it there as well. But the whole tenor of the psalm, uh, until they get to these couple of verses, talks about the man, the man, the man who does this, the man who does this. Let's go there. I'm going to take the time. I don't care. 
If you guys leave, you leave, okay? Psalm 112. This is too good of stuff to leave alone. Praise the Lord. Isn't that how it starts? If you understand what I've just communicated about how you get to doing every good work through the means of God's provision of sufficiency and opportunity uh, as an exercise of His grace, then this is where service will always take you to praising the Lord. Here we go. You ready? Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Oh, yeah, that's where I'm going to be. And it talks about his descendants. That looks great. Wealth and riches looks wonderful. But look at verse 3 at the end. His righteousness endures forever. Righteousness is the enduring thing, not the wealth and riches. The righteousness is what endures. He is upright and therefore arises, arises light in the darkness. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious, full of compassion and righteousness. Righteous. You see how righteousness keeps following on the heels of this. This compassion, this service, this ministry, it all ends in righteousness that endures forever. And it's just going right through it. And he says a good man deals graciously and lends. He'll guide his affairs with discretion. He'll never be shaken. The righteous will be an everlasting remembrance. This guy is investing his stuff that won't last as an act of righteousness for something that will last forever. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. That's why he's not afraid of evil tidings. His heart is established. He'll not be afraid until he sees desire upon the enemies. He is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. This is what the righteous do. They disperse abroad. They give to the poor. But... These acts of righteousness are not what he's trusting in because he's praising the Lord because he recognizes they are the gift of God's grace. And when I pick up God's grace and use it, that, brethren, is righteousness. And that act endures forever. That when we pick up and serve the Lord with all that he has given us and all the ways that he has provided for us, that action is something that lasts forever. Because that is righteousness, to receive God's grace and bring it into action in our life. You might say, this sounds awful lot like salvation. Yes, it does. It's exactly the same principle. Surprise! The principle for living the Christian life is the same as becoming a Christian life. Does that surprise you? God offers his gracious offer. We admit that we can't earn it. We don't deserve it, but we accept it as a free gift from his hand. We give him the glory, and we have eternal life. Guess what? When it comes to ministry, exact same process. God, by his grace, gives provision. He gives an offer, sets it on the table. If you'll pick it up from the table, bring it into your life, accept it by faith, trusting in the Lord. We give thanks to God, and we use it, and then we have eternal, enduring righteousness. Not to my praise, nor yours, but to God's. Because it was initiated by God's grace. If it's initiated by my natural abilities, then I think God owes me something, and that I bring some to the table, and that I'm worthy of praise and honor and applause. Righteousness is to take what God offers and disperse it and give it to the poor. 
And then we come to verse 10, 11. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving thrust to God. We studied this to some degree, but there's those, those broad statements again. Every and all. I mean, the, the, the passage is packed full of these words. So whenever we have a complaint... Your complaint isn't fundamentally against me. Your complaint is against God. You're saying His grace was withheld from you, which is exactly contrary from what God says. God says, My grace is sufficient, my grace is enough. It will abound, it will overflow your need. See, the issue wasn't. God's grace, He is able. The issue is your willingness to accept it. Put it into practice in your life. And to make it an enduring righteousness in you. To His praise. His righteousness endures forever. The man who picks up from the table the wonderful gift of God's grace that leads us to serving others to His glory. This is what makes a cheerful giver. Not just giver of money. A giver of yourself. Remember? First principle, you give of yourself first. Then your stuff. No one's beholding to you when you do that. You're the one beholding to God when you do that. Because you didn't initiate it. God did. Christian service is not about exercising your natural abilities to your glory. In fact, it's 180 degrees the opposite. Christian service is about taking God's grace and putting it to work in your life by faith to His glory. This is my aspiration. The testimony of my ministry is not about me, but about God. God's ministry in me. And I want it to be the testimony of each one in this church. This is our testimony. That all the glory, all the thanks goes to God. That this is a matter of His grace in us. That by His grace, by God's grace, we abound, we are sufficient, we have ample opportunities, and every opportunity God gives us, we lay hold of with joy because we want to have an abundance of every good work. Every single one. From what I can tell in this verse, the only thing that holds us back in ministry is our faith. Our willingness to trust God. And that's my challenge. Do you trust Him enough to serve Him? To pick up that gracious package that He's laid before you of ministry and say, I will do it. And when that happens, when you understand these principles, then you will never do it 
pouting. You'll never do it grudgingly. You'll never do it any other way than cheerfully. But we understand this is a privilege that God's given me. And I owe Him for allowing me to do this. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us. Thank You for the opportunity to serve You this day. For it's truly by Your hand that it has occurred. The opportunity is here. The provision of Abilities, the capacities are yours. Lord, help us to expand our understanding of what you want us to do in service. That we might have the courage, the trust in you to serve in righteousness and truth far beyond the wisdom of this world and never to his glory, only to yours. Never to our glory, but to your praise. Lord, help us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.